theme for a few moments. I want to lay uh, just a very brief ground for the Bible study tonight, and uh, then we're going to move ahead. Some of the teenagers will know some of this background because we actually taught it last Sunday. Uh, and uh, so they'll hear the foundation again. This will be some of them their second time hearing it. And um, then we'll jump into the message tonight. We'll actually probably spend more time laying foundation than we will on the message itself. Uh, but uh, I've got a ton of stuff to say in about 27 minutes or so, 37 minutes. And uh, we're going to do our best to get out on time because I know we have school tomorrow. But uh, if you'll listen quick, I'll talk quick, okay? And uh, we'll see if we can't get this knocked out uh, quickly. Psalm 1, and hold your finger there and then turn over to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. <clears throat> and keep your Bibles handy. If you uh, want to take notes, I would encourage you. We're going to go through a lot of material tonight. And it would be helpful. Oh, yes, Brother David, I'm sorry. I know Pastor had mentioned something about handing those out tonight. We'll give him just a moment to get those handed out for you. Glad you remembered that because I did not. Of course, that's not a surprise. I didn't remember singing the third verse either. <laughs> All right. There we go. Brother Tom can help him. All right, now, if you can do me a favor and uh, wait to read those till after church. <laughs> if you're like I am, you like to read them right away. Curiosity gets the best of you, and uh, you lose, uh, use, lose mention of it. Thank you. All right, Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse number 5. I'm going to go through these quickly. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. I want to just stop for a moment. Anytime I find in Scripture the words, Thus saith the Lord, I know that God has verbally inspired all of Scripture. But moments that he wants something emphasized very strongly, and especially when he's talking to his own children, the children of Israel, He'll have his prophets say this, thus saith the Lord. And what they're saying by that is, this is not something God has given me permission to say. These are the very words that God has told me. And so I always perk up and I listen carefully. He says in verse number 5, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, maketh flesh his arm, and his heart departeth from the Lord. Now we're going to pause for a minute and skip down to verse 7. I promise you we won't take these verses out of context because we're going to come back to chapter six, or verse number 6 in a moment. Verse number 7 says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and in whose hope the Lord is. The reason I read those two verses together is I want you to understand there's a contrast between two people here, the cursed man and the blessed man. The cursed man is the man that makes flesh his arm. He rests in the wisdom of men, and he rests in his own strength and his own charisma and his own talent. And we are living in a day and age where we, even in our churches, if we're not careful, will... Uh, cause uh, uh, we'll, we'll look to men's reasoning and we'll look to men's philosophy and we'll look to men's practices. Now, I know Pastor has just introduced a new curriculum for our church, and I'm very excited about it, uh, on the Great Commission. It is one of the greatest calls that God has ever given to man to win other people to Christ. And he's focusing on that over the next several months. He's even got somebody to come in and teach on soul winning. And one of the things that's very near and dear to my heart is the idea of soul winning and telling people about Christ everywhere you go and every time God provides opportunity. But the danger in soul winning many times is if we're not careful, we will seek for men's methods. And uh, the truth of the matter is I went to, two different, uh, I went to three different Bible colleges over my lifetime. 
and got an associate's degree at one and then spent two more two other colleges getting my bachelor's degree and two of those were very very large very strong soul winning ministries and one of the things i found in both of those ministries is they were teaching methodology that to me was human philosophy uh sales gimmicks i've sat in seminars where they teach you uh, how to stand at the door uh how to knock at the door what kind of knock you need to have when you knock on the door uh, how to dress, how to uh, put uh, a breath fresh in your mouth so that you don't knock them over with your breath. Uh, I've even been in uh, soul winning uh, training times where they teach you that you hold your hand a certain way when you shake their hand. Uh, where they teach you that you're supposed to nod your head a certain way as you ask questions. And can I say this? I, I'm thankful that, that there are souls that have been saved, I'm sure, through those methods but the truth of the matter is what we're doing when we do those things is we're saying we're going to rely on ourselves and our strength and our arm and our charisma and our mentality and our talents to accomplish this great commission. And God never one time in Scripture ever says, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature using just the things that I've given to you, the skills that I've given to you. What Christ says is I will go with you and I will give the increase. And what Christ says is you will be empowered with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look. There's only five things that the Bible teaches where Christ himself teaches us or God teaches us how to soul win. And we're going to look at those five things. Now, I'm not saying methodologies. There are certain methods that we learn in soul winning that are good. For instance, it is good to put a breath mint in your mouth. That's not a bad thing. But what I'm saying is let's not rely on those things. Let's not look at those things and say, okay, I, a checklist one, checklist two. Ch- I, okay, I've gone down the list. I've checked my list of everything I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to see results in soul winning simply because I followed the formula. That is never the case in Scripture. There's not a formula in soul winning. There's the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible says that a man will, that will rest in his own logic, in his own strength, and his, his strength is in his own arm, is a cursed man. In fact, in verse number 6, the Bible says he'll be like a heath, the little shrub bush, the little tumbleweed in the desert. He shall not see when the good cometh. He won't even see when God does something good in his life. And he inhabits the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land. What happens in a salt land? If you put salt on the ground, what happens? Nothing grows, right? How in the world do you think we're going to bear fruit? If we're living in a salt land. Can't happen, can it? So let's look at the blessed man. The blessed man in verse number 8, he shall be as a, what's the next word there? Tree. Boy, this is good. I like this. He shall be as a tree. And there's something here that said he's planted. Now the heath bush wasn't planted. He just goes wherever. He falls wherever he falls. He blooms wherever he falls. But there's something implied by this in the fact that the word planted is used here. And that is that there is a plan somewhere for that tree. He was put in that spot for a particular purpose. And when I go out to plant a garden, I plan it out. I say, okay, I want all my peas to go here. I want all my carrots to go here. I want all my corn to go here. And I plan it out, and I plant the plants. I don't just throw them all up into the air and say, good luck, guys. We'll see you later. We plant them. And so we find that this tree, this blessed man, is a tree that's planted, and he's planted by, uh, by the rivers of water, by the waters. And spreadeth out her roots in the river, by the river, shall not see when the heat cometh. So this one's blind too, but he's blind to the bad that happens. All he sees is the God of the problem. He doesn't see the problem. He sees God. And he sees how God's going to deliver him through the problem. And cometh, uh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not uh, be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from, what's the next two words there? Yielding 
fruit. Do you see the, the contrast here between the two? One of them depends on the Lord to see the fruit. One of them depends on himself to see the fruit. And the one that depends on himself to see the fruit never sees the fruit. Now turn with me to Psalm 1, and again, we're just laying some foundation here quickly. Psalm 1, and we're going to not take the time to go into the theology of verses 1 and 2 of the blessed man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand the way of sinners, or seat in the sin, and the sea of scornful, but delights in the law of the Lord. If you've got time, there's four things there about the blessed man in verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice in verse number 3, though, the Bible says, and he shall be like a, what's the next word? Tree. He shall be like a tree planted. Boy, there's that word again, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? He should be like a tree. It's almost like the same author wrote these things, isn't it? He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit. And boy, we love to read this verse. This tree is going to bear fruit. But I want you to notice the verse does not end there. It says, in his season. I want to stop there for a minute. Because I was in two very large soul winning ministries for a number of years and was never taught this truth. If you don't get anything else that I say tonight, please stay with me for about the next ten minutes. This tree is going to bear fruit, we know no doubt about it, because the Bible says in the next verse, uh, or at the end of that verse, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We know that God's going to prosper this blessed man. So we know that the tree at some point in time is going to bear fruit. But I want you to notice several things about a tree. First of all, it gets its nourishment. We're not going to take the time right now to turn over to the book of, I believe it's Colossians chapter 5 or somewhere in that range, uh, that talks about the water of the Word. And that the Bible and our walk with God, our time in prayer, is the nourishment that a Christian gets. The time spent with God. And can I say this? I was listening to a fellow years ago when I was a teenager, and he said that uh, the top priority in a Christian's life is his walk with God before anything else. His walk with God is imperative. And you're going to see that by the time we get to the end of our study tonight, that that is the top priority for a Christian. Now, it is not the only priority for the Christian because just underneath that one and just uh, below that one is the uh, responsibility that we have to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But notice that God uh, implies here in verses, uh, verse number 3 of Psalm 1 that the tree has to be within its season. Years ago, my dad bought a, an orange tree. I've shared this illustration. I'm not sure if I've shared it in here or not. I know I've shared it with the teenagers. But my dad bought an orange tree. He loved navel oranges. And so he went down to Lowe's and he bought him a, a, a navel orange tree. It was about, oh, probably 18, 20 inches tall in one of those little dishes. And he brought it home. He put it in the ground and he uh, fed it and he put, uh, uh, he put miracle grow on it. My dad used to think that with God and miracle grow, uh, anything will grow. And uh, so uh, really the truth is with God, anything will grow. But he always liked that miracle grow. And uh, he would put miracle grow on it. didn't matter what kind of chemicals it was. He was going to eat it in the orange anyway. And uh, he was putting all this stuff on there. And the first year came around. And, boy, it was, it was uh, orange blossom season. He couldn't wait. And some blossoms came out on the tree. And uh, guess how many oranges that tree had the first year? Zero. The second year comes around. He thought, well, it's a young tree. It'll probably bloom next year again. And so, sure enough, he, he, he feeds it. And it gets a little bigger, a little taller, a little broader. Now it's probably about two and a half, maybe 30 inches tall, something like that, uh, 36 inches tall. And uh, season comes around, the blooms, and guess how many oranges? Zero. 
Third year comes around, gets a little taller, about four feet now. I can still remember it was up above my waist. My dad kept saying, son, don't hit it with the weed eater. He didn't want to tear up the bark around it and kill it. And um, uh, the blooms came again that season. Guess how many oranges? Zero. We're getting ready to come into the fourth season. My dad goes out to that tree. I'm still, I was there the day he did. I was watching him do it. He talked to the tree. And he said, if you don't bear oranges this year, I'm going to cut you down. The blossoms came. Guess how many oranges were bloomed on that tree? One. The tree hurt him. It was a little bitty green one, and it never fully ripened, and it finally fell off and rotted on the ground. Now, orange trees, we all understand this, and, and other trees that bear fruit take time to mature. Do they not? And a tree is going to uh, only do what it's got enough nourishment to do. You put a tree in a drought condition. Let me ask you a question. Is it going to bear fruit in drought? No. Is it going to grow in drought? No. It's going to use what little bit of nourishment it has to simply do what? Stay alive. It's all it's got, and it's fighting for that. Now, if that tree's got enough water to stay alive and it's got some, a little bit extra, you know what else it's going to do? The second thing it's going to do? It's going to strengthen itself because it wants to bear a lot of fruit. So its branches are going to get bigger. Its trunk is going to get bigger. And it's going to think, man, if I get big enough, I can have a lot of fruit. But if it doesn't have enough water to bear fruit, all it's going to do is stay alive and grow like that little orange tree did for three or four years. It, it, all it did was grow and get bigger. But finally... There was enough for it to stay alive. There was enough for it to grow. And then there was enough nourishment. There was enough water there. And the root system was big enough. It had rooted itself well enough to gain the nutrients. Finally, it bore fruit. Now, can I help you with something here? A couple things. First of all, a tree does not strain and fight. There goes a fruit. I got a fruit. Oh, wow, look at that. I'm so proud of that thing. No, the fruit happens because the tree is well-rooted and well-nourished. It's a natural occurrence of a healthy tree. Now, let me ask you uh, the second thing I want you to show about this. I'm going to ask you a question about it. What is the purpose of the fruit? What is it? To multiply. To bear another tree. Another tree. You don't just bear fruit, drop it on the ground, and let it rot. Amen. Somebody gets led to the Lord. You don't just put them out to pasture and say, Man, I'm so glad, brother. We'll see you in heaven one day. And sad to say our churches are doing that. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice something. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. And keep your Bibles handy. We're going to turn to uh, several passages here real quickly. Matthew chapter 5. Actually, I'm going to back you up to chapter 4 for a moment. Matthew chapter 4 and uh, verse number, oh, let's see here, verse number 18. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, uh, he's just starting his ministry here. Uh, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, follow me, for I will make you, what are the next three words? Fishers of men. Now, if we're going to learn how to soul win, if we're going to learn how to tell people about Christ, let's go to the greatest soul winning trainer the world has ever known, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus walks up to two fishermen sitting there fishing with their nets. I don't know about you, but if I talk to some of these guys like Brother Richard uh, that like to love to go fishing, it's not too many guys that will drop their, net, their poles and their nets and walk away from fishing. These guys, I mean, they were working and, and fishing, and Christ comes up to them and says, You follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He says, I'll train you. I'll teach you. Now look what it says in verse number 19. Uh, he says, and he says, or verse number 20. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So four men he calls at the Sea of Galilee, all of them fishermen. He said, fellas, if you'll follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. How long was it before those disciples won their first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ? Quite possibly the day of Pentecost. There may have been some others along the way, but the Bible doesn't record them. Now, there are going to be some things you'll read. And uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 10. I'll just give you quickly a few of these. Matthew chapter number 10. You'll find this also in Mark chapter 6. You'll also find it in Luke chapter 9. Christ is in his earthly ministry. He's just had the Sermon on the Mount. He's just gone through a, a whole passel of uh, miracles in his ministry. So he's taught them the Sermon on the Mount about all kinds of principles. And uh, he has now established, he's validated his message through miracles. And in chapter 10 of Matthew, we find in verse number 5, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. And he goes on down and he gives them instruction about how they're to go. He teaches them in uh, Mark chapter 6. Let's turn over there for a moment. We're not going to take time to read all of these passages. But I want you to see that they are here. In Mark chapter number 6 and verse number 7. The Bible says, and he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth two by two. Now, that's important. He sends them two by two and gave them power of unclean spirits, commanded them, saying they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff, only no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with the sandals and not put on two coats. And then he goes in and tells them about dwelling in houses, and if anybody rejects them, let them be accursed and shake the dust off your feet. Now turn with me, if you will, over to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. And this one's kind of the critical one, if you will, because this is where some people will take passages out of Scripture to try to prove their human methodology of soul winning. In Luke chapter number 9 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. Now that's important. He's sending them to preach the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here is referring to the political kingdom that the Messiah is going to set up, his rule and reign on earth, which has not happened yet. It won't happen until the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And this is what the kingdom of God is referring to and what he sent them out to teach them. Knowing this, he, they're only called to go to the house of Israel, right? Not to the Gentiles. So he's going to the Jews, and he's supposed, they're supposed to be teaching and preaching that they're to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which did not come at that time, but will come in the thousand-year reign. In verse number 3, he says, And take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, and again gives them instructions. In verse number 6, this is where a lot of people get mixed up, and they departed and went through the towns preaching the, what's the next word there? Gospel and healing everywhere. Now let me ask you a question. What does gospel mean? It means good news. 
In New Testament times, it means the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we refer to as the gospel. However, at this point in time in his ministry, the disciples do not understand the death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, most of them did not even know about it. Christ had not yet revealed to him. In fact, when he reveals it to him a little bit later, they're shocked that he would be, uh, have, to, have to die and be raised up again. And some of them didn't even understand his words that he was saying when he said them. So they're going out and they're preaching at this point what is the gospel, which we interpret to be good news. And that's the word that's used here. What is the good news to the Jews? Messiah is here. That's what they're preaching. Messiah is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll receive him, I mean, here it is. We're ready to go. You know, we're getting ready to set this thing up. And, of course, we understand from history that the Jews rejected him and crucified him. And Christ knew this all along in his foreknowledge. He knew this was going to have to take place. And so don't get mixed up when somebody comes to these passages and begins to preach on this and says, okay, this is why we have to go soul winning, uh, you know, just right away. And and as soon as uh, we can teach you the five verses that you need to quote and and teach you how to hold your hand right and teach you how to dress right and look right. Wait a minute. Hold on. At least three and a half years, the disciples were in training before they ever became a fisher of man. Biblically, what were they training uh, what did they learn in their training? Well, they sat on the Sermon on the Mount, didn't they? They're learning a lot of doctrine from Christ. He's teaching them. Because we find in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 at the Great Commission, if you'll take a moment to turn over there, if you don't know the verses by heart, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, or go ye therefore and teach all nations, excuse me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the disciples weren't just to, to share the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They were also then to take that new convert and teach them in all things. Well, how are they going to do that if they haven't been trained? If their walk with God is not what it should be, if they have not spent time studying in the Word of God to show themselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. It's, it's like, and this is where a lot of mentality comes from. It would be like my dad walking out to that little 18-inch uh, tall orange tree and expecting there to be 100 bushels of big, bright navel oranges on it. Let me ask you something. If there had been even 50 of those solid, big oranges on that little bitty 18-inch tree, what do you think would have happened to that tree before long? It would have died, wouldn't it? Can't tolerate it. It hasn't dug its roots in yet. It's not even getting enough nourishment. That's why the important thing in soul winning, one of the great things that we have overlooked is that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day we wake up, we say, Lord, teach me in your word. We open it up and we devour it. We love it with all of our heart. We cherish it. And that's what Psalm 119, verse, chapter number 1, talks about in verse number 2. It says, and his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate. What? Day and night. Why? Because he's getting ready to be a tree planted by the rivers of raw water and getting ready to bear fruit. I've watched a lot of young Christians, a lot of young Christians, Sit in a church where the pressure to go out and go out and let me, I'll teach you five verses or seven verses of the Romans road. And brother, you can get out there and you can do it. And I'll tell you this, with the power of God, you can. And praise God, God uses us in spite of ourselves. 
But wouldn't it be a lot better if He would use us because of ourselves? Because we've walked with Him, because we've nourished ourselves, because we've deepened our roots, because we've studied the doctrine, we know Scripture. Then we don't have to worry when they ask us that question. We know the answer. We've seen it in Scripture. I've sat in soul winning seminars where they say, if anybody asks you a question, and you just tell them, you know what, we'll get to that later on. That person has a legitimate question. How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? If we're not answering their questions, where's the faith coming from? We must know the Word of God. We must walk as a child of God. We must deepen ourselves. I've watched so many times. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. I wasn't going to put this one in here, but I think we will just for sake of doing this tonight. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse number 11, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 11. The writer of Hebrews says, Of whom we have many things to say, speaking of Christ being uh, after the order of Melchizedek. So he's speaking here of Christ. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Well, teachers imply that there's somebody there on the other side listening to what you're saying, isn't there? I mean, Miss Carla, when you go into your classroom, you're not really a teacher unless there's a student there, are you? In the times that you are to be teachers, verse number 12, uh, verse number 12, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. What a shame that the author of Hebrews is writing to these folks and to the Jews here. And he's saying, listen, some of y'all have studied and learned, but you're babes in Christ. Some of you have never grown. Some of you got your ticket punched to heaven and that's all you care about. And you don't walk with God and you don't grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some of you that ought to be teachers by now. There's some of you ought to be out there knocking on doors and telling people about Christ, and you're not ready for it yet. You have need yourself that somebody come to your house and knock on your door and share with you the milk of the Word. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful, verse number 13, in the Word of Righteousness. For he is a babe. Maybe that's why Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Why? So that when Timothy preached, he himself would not be a castaway. So that when Paul preached, he himself would not be a castaway. So that when they shared the gospel, there was no embarrassment of the cause of Christ. Why? Because these men had soaked it up like a sponge. Now turn with me back, if you will, to the book of Luke for a moment. I want to show you just a few things, and we're going to give you the fourth, uh, the five things that I find that the Bible teaches about soul winning. Like I said, the introduction and the groundwork is much, much longer than the message. So don't get nervous yet. We still have ten minutes. The Bible says in Luke chapter 24, and verse number 45, Luke 24 and verse number 45, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Very, very important. Because he's getting ready to send them into all the world to preach the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ now. 
Very, very important that they understand the scriptures. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now Christ was died and was buried and rose again around Passover. It, it bracketed Passover right before Passover. Uh, the day of Pentecost is about 50 days after Passover. And the disciples were with Christ for 40 days. So at the point of his ascension till the time of Pentecost is about 10 days or so. And we find in Acts chapter number 1, if you'll turn over there in verse number 8, that Christ fulfills his promise that he promises them here in Luke chapter 24. In Acts chapter 1, and let's look at verse number 8, again they're speaking here of Christ, but ye shall receive power. You see that? Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And not until. When the Holy Spirit came and was upon them, then they were to go soul winning. Very, very important. Because we miss many times a lot of soul winning opportunities because we're not sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Notice it says when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. There is a big difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the indoing of the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody used to say it this way. He said that the indwelling, of course, happens at the moment of salvation where Christ or the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. When he does that, every Christian that's ever trusted Christ as their Savior has the Holy Spirit in them. But not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them as a cloak, as a shroud, empowering them and strengthening them for the work at hand. Some folks told D.L. Moody one time, said, the world has yet to see what a man wholly yielded to God can truly do. D.L. Moody was so shaken by this, he got on his knees and he said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And he went on to shake two continents for the Lord. But not until then. So we find that these disciples were to be in Jerusalem till they were endued with power. In verse number 8, we find it confirmed again that they're to wait. Now, wait a minute. Stop for a minute. Time out. These disciples are not like you and I. These 120 or so that saw him ascend and those that were around him, they're not like you and I. They don't have a, a book that just tells them about these things. They saw them firsthand. They saw Christ on the cross. They saw him go into the tomb. They saw him in his resurrected form. They saw him with the miracles that he did. They listened to his teaching. They sat at his feet. They watched as the twelve baskets were brought forth with five loaves and two fishes. And God says, man, I know you're excited. And Christ says, I want you to go. It's almost like a pep rally here. I can almost imagine the ascension. Man, you all are excited. Go out there and tell the whole world about this. And they're chomping at the bit. He says, well, wait. you got to wait. Go to Jerusalem. And there will come a time when I endue you with power from the Holy Ghost. And that's the time you know. 
It's time to go then. I've often wondered. I know that God's word never returns void. I know that. The Bible teaches that. I know that even a lost man reciting the word of God, the Holy Spirit can take the words and convict a heart of a sinner. I understand that. But I have often wondered, are we disobedient children to attempt God's work without His power? We don't seek God's power like they did years ago. We don't seek for His help. We almost get the mindset of all of our programs, all of the modern technologies... All of the lighting, all of the sound, all of the special music, the dramatics, the the drama, the dancing. Lord, you can go over there and wait. And if we need you, we'll call you while we do your work. May God help us. May God help us. That we can on our faces and plead with God for the unction of His Holy Spirit. That when we go and we knock on that door, we know His power and His presence is with us. We find over in chapter number 2, verse number 1, the Bible says, and when, uh, of Acts, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat up, uh, upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, which was why the purpose of tongues was there for. These were not unknown tongues. These were known tongues. There were people from every nation there, and God wanted every one of them to hear in their own tongue. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these that speak, which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Amalites and the dwellers at Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene. The strangers and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues and the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you. And hearken to my words, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. If you take time to read the rest of the chapter, how the moving of the Holy Spirit of God on those disciples turned the world upside down. I wish I had about two more hours because we haven't even come close to doing this justice tonight. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was saved, take time to read about it in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. 
You'll find that Saul, when he was saved, he went into Damascus and was there for three days, and Ananias came and took the scales off of his eyes. He went preaching everywhere he went, telling him about God. And it stirred up a ruckus. Nobody would listen to him. As far as we know from Scripture, no one was saved from the Apostle Paul during those days. He finally gets Barnabas to come and bring him into the fellowship of the apostles, and they didn't trust him. Scripture says that. He was with the apostles and again caused such an uproar and a stir, they had to lower him down out of a window with a basket one day to escape being killed. They finally said, Paul, go home. It's in Acts chapter 7. Sent him back to Tarsus. The Bible doesn't say how long he was there, but it was a while before, because the Bible says the church has had peace. And Barnabas finally, when it's time for a missionary journey, remembers there's a zealous young man down there in Tarsus. Boy, he was so excited about being saved. I wonder what God's doing with him right now. And he went down to see Paul. And you all know the rest of the story. How the hundreds of thousands of people came to know Christ. But it didn't happen as soon as he got saved. Paul had to grow. He had to deepen his roots. There's five things that Christ taught his disciples about soul winning. It's 8 o'clock. I'm going to give them to you in the list and we're going to go home. Matthew chapter 28, he tells them that they're to share the gospel. Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Share the gospel. That's what soul winning is about, is sharing the gospel. The second thing he taught his disciples is you don't just leave them there, you teach them in all other things too. You don't just drop the fruit on the ground and say, boy, it sure was a pretty piece of fruit while it was hanging there. You nurture it. You develop it. The third thing he taught them was to go two by two, a great method. He taught them a method, didn't he? Go two by two. I think that's a great thing. Number four, he taught them to go house to house. We haven't taken time to do this, but you'll find in Acts chapter number two that they were daily in the temple and from house to house. If you'll read in Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9, you'll find as he sends out the disciples what he instructs them to do about entering houses that will accept them and not entering houses that don't accept them. Number five, they were to go with the Holy Spirit's power. That's all Christ ever taught his disciples about soul winning. The rest of the time he spent teaching them how to deepen their roots, how to grow as a tree, how to strengthen themselves for the work, teaching them in doctrine. If Christ were to come in here and give a soul winning seminar on how to lead somebody to Christ, I don't think he would give you a list of verses and say, memorize these and you can tell somebody how to, how to go to heaven. Oh, I'm not saying it's wrong. Christ never said to have a Sunday school either, and we have one. It's a good thing. I'm just saying it's not the method that Christ would teach. He would teach us to share the gospel. He would teach us to teach them to do all things whatsoever he had commanded us, to go two by two from house to house and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you'll bear with me and take a couple minutes here. <clears throat> there are places that will teach you 
what type of story to open with, how to greet somebody, how to get your foot in the door on soul winning. And what I say to that is may God deliver us from that. I better know the Holy Spirit intimately and be able to sense and be able to tell when that door is open and when that door is shut. Because I've watched a lot of soul winners do more harm to the cause of Christ by being a bull in a china shop than soul winning. Just so they can report back to their church on Sunday, I had so many saved this week. It's interesting tonight, we've not taken time to look at it, but in 1 Corinthians you'll find that Paul chastised the church at Corinth. Because some of them said, I'm of Paul, and some said, I'm of Apollos, some said, I'm of Cephas, and some said, I'm of Christ. He said, wait a minute, folks, don't you understand this? It doesn't matter who's doing the work. I may water, I may plant, Cephas may water, he may plant, I don't know. All I know is God giveth the increase. And everything we learn about soul winning, not all of it's bad to learn. I'm not saying just don't listen to methods. Not all of it's bad to learn. But let's not rely on the methods. Let's not put our faith in the methods and say that's what's going to accomplish the work because it's not. It's being yielded and sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God that will accomplish the work. And as he leads and as he directs, and you know, it's amazing to me how many times I've been sharing the gospel with somebody and something will come up in the middle of the conversation and a verse will come to mind I haven't thought of for maybe a year or two. You say, Brother Greg, that's a coincidence. No, 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 no. That's the Holy Spirit of God. And can I tell you tonight, I am ashamed at how many times I have attempted God's work without God's power. May we pray as a church that God deliver us from such things and that we would seek for the power of God on this ministry. We ought to be praying every day for our pastor that God would continue to empower him and strengthen him. We should be praying for one another that God would empower each of us and strengthen each of us for the work at hand. May God help us in this area of soul winning to have a right biblical foundation and then to get out there and get the work done. You know, it's interesting to me. God would have never commanded us to reach the entire world with the gospel if he didn't plan on enabling us to do it. Let's stand together with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for your word and what it teaches. Lord, we have tried in just a very, very few minutes to teach an awful lot of material. I wish we had more time. Because there's so much more that needs to be brought out. But Father, may these few moments together, learning these simple principles that you used in training your disciples to be soul winners, May these be used. And Lord, may we take them and embrace them. And Father, that we would spend time deepening our walk with you, seeking for your Holy Spirit's power. And then, Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, being endued with the Holy Spirit, and armed with a understanding, a full understanding of Scripture. Lord, may we go out into this world that we have in this generation and turn it upside down for you. We pray that you'll dismiss us now with your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.